Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Rost, and I'll be your guide as we explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. Today's episode continues our multi-part series on border wars, a detailed examination of the conflicts that define Missouri's borders and boundaries, as well as the state's role in the Civil War and its aftermath. Our guest today is Joseph Beeline, Jr. He holds a PhD in history from the University of Missouri and presently serves as an associate professor of history at Penn State Erie, the Barron College. He is the author of Bushwhackers, Guerrilla Warfare, Manhood, and the Household in Civil War, Missouri, and the co-editor of The Civil War Guerrilla, Unfolding the Black Flag in History, Memory, and Myth. Welcome to our Missouri, Joe. Thanks for having me, Sean. I'm really looking forward to talking about the, the Bushwhackers and the Civil War in Missouri. Now, to begin with, tell us about the origins of this book project. Um, well, this started for me in graduate school at the University of Missouri. Um, it's hard to, to pin down exactly where the book uh, uh, started, um, but it probably started with, um, with either a problem or, or a group of sources, or, or maybe both at the same time. I, I know that I was reading a lot about the guerrilla war in Missouri when I was getting my master's at, at the university. And there were certain things that I was reading that just didn't really add up um, in terms of uh, an understanding of the guerrilla community uh, and the men who fought as, as bushwhackers. And, and about the same time that I was sensing that there was something um, that, that, that the math wasn't adding up and, and we didn't have a true picture of who these people were, I also uh, began to look into a source space um, a primary source base known as the Provost Marshal Records, which uh, if, if I remember Ellis Library correctly, it was either on the third or fourth floor, whatever that, that, that top floor is, um, they had microfilm of the Provost Marshal Records. And uh, what these records were, uh, they were a collection of all of the various reports from the, this, this group of the, the Union Army that was really in charge of monitoring civilians during the war. So these provost marshals had been put in place throughout Missouri, Western Missouri, where we have a lot of the guerrilla activity, Central Missouri, um, and they were responsible. These were the guys that were responsible for interrogating, arresting, uh, imprisoning, um, quote unquote, civilians, meaning guerrillas and their supporters. So it, long story short, I started looking through those sources and started seeing that my assumptions, my, 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 um, yeah, I think assumptions is the right word that, that maybe the gorillas were not, you know, really the picture of a gorilla wasn't really filled out. Those were confirmed when I looked through those provost marshal records and got to see really inside the war. I got to see what, what, what these people who were fighting as gorillas or supporting the gorillas, what they looked like, why they were fighting, you know, how they were fighting and, and all of that. So, so Long story short, it was sort of a combination of seeing the problem and also getting familiar with the primary sources that would allow me to solve the problem. That's sort of how Bushwhackers got started. 
Now you mentioned the, the provost marshal records there. Um, and I think it's actually the fourth floor of Ellis Library, if I'm remembering. Yeah. Um, but that sounds right. What what other sources and archives are you consulting for this project? And are you even visiting some of these sites throughout the state of Missouri? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, Sean. Um, so I said I started off with the Provost Marshall records, and I really intended this to be a, a project that was um, thick and thick and thick with those records. And while it, the Provost Marshall records still sort of form the spine of the research or, or the backbone of the research, uh, I filled it out in ways that I did not anticipate when I first started researching it. So, so as this thing moved from a, a master's thesis to a dissertation and then now to a, to a book, um, I, I needed sources that would help me connect all of these, these stories. So um, in addition to the Provost Marshall records, I also looked at the military records in uh, the OR or the official records of, of the War of the Rebellion. Uh, the, 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 the Union and Confederate Armies, which is a massive source collection. Um, so you're getting reports from, from Union officers and a few uh, interesting reports from, from guerrillas or Confederate officers, but it's mostly from the Union perspective. And then to really tie the, the individual chapters together, I started looking more and more at guerrilla memoirs. So um, there's, there's you know, a, probably two handfuls of, of guerrilla memoirs out there. Uh, everything from, from John McCorkle's guerrilla memoir, which is really accurate, William Gregg's memoir, which is really accurate, to like the Frank James and Cole Younger memoir, uh, recollections and memoirs, which are, um, uh, let's just say that, that Cole Younger liked to stretch the, the truth a little bit. And even in his own memoirs, of which there's a couple, he tells the same story differently. Uh, but but to, to, to make a long story short, those helped uh, connect sources that I, was, that I was compiling and putting together. Um, census records, uh, uh, the agricultural census, slave schedules, all this stuff sort of came together to help fill out the book. And, and I should say, um, to answer the last part of your question, we did, uh, I usually did it with, with a friend, someone in graduate school or, 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 or someone else, we would go and visit some of these, site, these sites, um, especially uh, Centralia, which, which of course is the site of a famous a massacre and then then a battle or a massacre, however you want to, to look at it, uh, which is just north of, of Columbia in Boone County. Uh, and so you could go up there and sort of walk around and it's on some farmer's land. And uh, that helped really give me a sense of, of the space, of the place where the, the, these really sort of gruesome bloodlettings um, uh, took place. So, uh, you know, went there, would, would, would drive over to Kansas City and, and just, you know, you just sort of want to be out there and feel, um, you know, the humidity, feel the heat, breathe, breathe the same air that these, these men were breathing, you know, 150, 160 years ago. In the book, you know, there's a quote that you have where you say, we cannot begin the study of the grill at the moment in which he began to kill. Instead, we must go back to his roots and observe his development into manhood. Now, thinking about that kind of phrase and terminology there, how did one's family, you know, their own household, and even the community they grew up in influence their thoughts and actions and lives as guerrillas or as bushwhackers? Yeah, I, I think that that's a, a big part of what I was trying to do with, with this book was um, to point out that, that who these men became was not anomalous to, to who they were before the war and also not after the war but 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 it wasn't as if the you know 
um, the the PGT Beauregard and the, and you know the South Carolina militia they fire on Fort Sumter and then all of the sudden these young in, men in Missouri you know grow their hair long go out in the woods and start killing everybody um, rather the identity that they that they took on the way that they saw their world was very much an outgrowth of their lives in this sort of antebellum um, intersection of the South and the West. So uh, a lot of their war was informed by uh, a legacy of their families coming from, um, you know, Virginia, Kentucky, into Missouri. Uh, I mean, these are the direct descendants of people like Daniel Boone and his extended kinship network. Um, and their place there, of course, you know, along the border with Kansas and all the trouble that would happen there, that of course informed the way that they fought during the war. Um, but, but to get to your point about families and, and kinship networks, these young men, even though they were so obviously fighting to defend the institution of slavery, even though this war was about slavery, in their own minds, because their women are right there on the, you know, the, the, the battlefront of the war, they're right there on the border, they're there, you know, uh, it's the first place that, get, that gets invaded, and of course, it's, there's been fighting there since the mid-1850s, these young men conflate the cause of slavery with the defense of home. And unlike some young man growing up in Alabama, where the war is, is, you know, starts off hundreds of miles away, you might pretend like you're defending your, your, your wife and children or your mother and your sisters or your sweetheart or whoever um, when you go off to really fight for slavery. But for the bushwhackers, they, there was a lot of truth to their belief that uh, I'm going to fight for my women. I'm going to fight for my, my uh, uh, community, so to speak, because you know, their homes had been set to the torch, their, their women had been run out and, and all that stuff. So, so they tied together in their minds this war for slavery with this war for, for, their, for their women, for their homes, for their households. Now, thinking about those family ties and those kinship ties, <clears throat> one might ask though, why do these bushwhackers so often terrorize and attack what might be seen as their own land and their own community? If they're concerned about What's going on at home? Why then attack that same area? Yeah, and that that is really sort of the 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 key in my mind to understanding uh, uh, this war. I mean, really understanding it on an academic level. Um, you know, getting up on top of it and seeing it for what it was. The the modern interpretation of the guerrilla war is exactly what what you just described, Sean. It it, it was young men making wars on their communities, seemingly on their own people. And when I looked at this, you know, at first glance, that's exactly what it looks like. But as you probe deeper and you probe into the past, you start to understand that community was something that was very different to them than it is to us. So we would look at Missouri and we'd look at that border uh, of Missouri and we'd think very geographically about what defines a community. So it's Missouri or it's Jackson County or it's Howard County. And if there's fighting within Missouri, we presume it's Missourians fighting Missourians. Therefore, it is a community at war with itself, the very definition of civil war, right? The problem with that is as you, as you get further into the past and you start seeing the war through the eyes of the participants, you begin to realize that that's not how they saw community. That in Missouri, uh, as, as the, you know, that state transitioned into civil war in, in the late 1850s, early 1860s, 
there was not one community, but there were several distinct communities who never saw the others as uh, their own. So you have these Southerners who I described coming across, you know, from Virginia, Kentucky, North Carolina, Tennessee, into, into Missouri. Those are really sort of, you know, after the Native Americans, after the, the, the French, the, you know, the, the, the early Spanish, English, whoever, you know, comes over. These are really the first Anglo-Americans to settle in the state. These are the ones that really bring it to statehood in, in, in 1820. Um, then you have these other groups of people. You have handfuls of Northerners that come in. And then in the 1840s and, and especially the 1850s, you get this huge wave of German immigrants who settle in St. Louis uh, and then these other river valleys uh, around around the state, uh, places that you, you know that tend to look like the the Rhine River Valley and places back home in, in Germany, and these Germans are radical. I'm sure your podcast listeners you know know all this, but but they are they're radical. Um, they tend to be abolitionists in in terms of their political views, and so they naturally do not get along with these uh, uh, Southerners, and the Southerners do not get along with them. So when the war breaks out. You might look at you know some violence that happens in a place like Jackson County and think, oh my God, the people of Jackson County are just slaughtering each other. But the reality is, it's these Southerners in Jackson County making war on people who they believe to be Unionists, who they never saw as their community, uh, or or in you know like Gasconade County or one of those counties elsewhere in the state where it's you know Southerners making war on Germans who they never identified as their own. So what I tried to do with this book is to redefine community as the people who waged the war defined it. That gives us a much better sense, a much better view uh, from the ground of, of what these people were doing in terms of, of fighting. And, and I think it does a little bit of justice to, to the concept of guerrilla war more generally. I, I think when we say the guerrilla war is chaos and anarchy and, and all this stuff, we, we just completely fail to understand the participants of the war, whether it's you know, Missouri guerrillas, you know, the, these slaveholders, or it's, you know, freedom fighters uh, in, in Afghanistan, or, you know, in, in South America, or, you know, wherever, um, we have a tendency to see them as, uh, you know, being agents of chaos. And the reality is, if you're on the ground, you would understand very clearly what these people are trying to do, and, and, and how they see their community uh, versus their, their enemies. Now, when the kind of the first elements of your book opens, you provide a, a very detailed visual representation of what a bushwhacker would have looked like from down, not only down to the weapon used, but the clothing, horse, you know, what they're looking like on the ridge in a distance. And something that really struck me in the, in, in the book was the gorilla shirt. And you, and you go into kind of great detail about that shirt and its significance. So what did that shirt symbolize to the gorilla? And, and how did a bushwhacker come to even wear it? Yeah, the, the gorilla shirt was, is fascinating. And that was another thing that drew me to this project were all of the interesting bits and pieces of gorilla culture. You know, this culture that, that while it's connected to these antebellum roots, it really kind of uh, uh, becomes its own thing during the war. And, and nothing was more emblematic of that than the gorilla shirt. Uh, so the gorilla shirt, uh, to to just the the to get the simple part of the answer out of the way before I you know go on and on and on as I as I'm as I tend to do about these things, the the gorilla shirt represented both uh, love, 
meaning the connection to their 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 community to go back to my previous response so it's it's love or or connection to their women uh whether it's their sweethearts or mothers or sisters or whoever made the shirt but it also uh it also symbolizes their independence as men so it breaks with that that 19th century image of of uniformed armies right of these sort of uh monochromatic armies uh, the you know the blue and the gray marching out into to, to a field um, where everyone you know you, you know who's on which side. It breaks with that, um, and it and it gives men a chance to stand out and, and to sort of display their independence, which was absolutely critical to white Southern young men, uh, especially white Southern young men who who you know were living along the, the, the Western border there, uh, whether it was Missouri or Arkansas or Texas or, or wherever. Um, so how they ended up wearing the shirt is sort of a, um, it, it sort of connects with everything else because there's these deep, these deep antebellum roots. The shirt is loosely um, uh, originates or, or is born of the frontier hunting shirts that people like Daniel Boone wore, you know, crossing the Appalachian Mountains, you know, uh, uh, hunting um, in in Kentucky, and, and then later on in in Missouri. So the the design of the shirt is about the same, with the big you know front pockets to carry anything from uh, powder, uh, uh, lead balls to to you know food, you know whatever uh, supplies might need flint, um, whatever it was. Um, Hunters wore this, you know, from the colonial period all the way through, uh, you know, into the late 19th century. We have examples of like Buffalo Bill Cody, you know, wearing these, um, and mountain men, of course, in the in the Western Mountains, wearing these shirts. So, it, so there's a sort of utility to the, the design of the shirt. So that's where where that came from. Now, um, we we also have stories uh, again, not to, to to keep hammering Daniel Boone, but you know, he's one of those figures that we know something about. Um, we also know that these men, you know, sort of had these plain hunting shirts, but then they also had these fancy hunting shirts um, that they would wear if they got, you know, let's say married out on the frontier, um, you know, at Fort Boone or, or wherever it was. So th there, there was a history of decorating these shirts and really sort of making them flamboyant. And that's what we see with the, with the gorilla shirt. They have this shirt that has a, a great deal of utility. And then the, the women start decorating them in ways that are, I mean, it's beyond uh, um, uh, uh, flamboyant. But if we had color images, which I mean, it, uh, I, I wish we would, you can see where some of these images, if you look online, have been colored in, but to see the color images, it must have been, you know, just electric in terms of um, the way that these shirts probably, you know, came to life and, and radiated that, that sort of love and independence. But Anyway, these women started decorating these shirts and they would decorate them with flowers and garland and, and um, using different kinds of thread, you know, to not, not real flowers, but, but sort of, you know, threaded flowers or sewn flowers, but, but they, would, they would decorate them with these flowers and these wild designs and, and they had sort of slightly different cuts around the neck and, and you know, there'd be lace and, and just all of these really sort of beautiful um, parts to the shirt. Which, of course, you know, lets the man represent himself as as an independent fighter, almost like we think about like medieval knights, you know, wearing their different colored armor and, and things like that to distinguish themselves from, you know, other knights, other, you know, you know, peers of the realm, other other folks like that. Um, so they could distinguish themselves um, among their peers. 
but then also it communicated love to go back to that point there there was something it still exists but it was much more popular back then known as the language of flowers and people believed that each flower stood for a specific uh, idea or emotion and these women knew this so when they were sewing these shirts and designing these shirts they were putting flowers and roses and you know uh, trying to think of another uh, a, a distinctive you know like an apple blossom you know whatever the the particular flower is um, they all meant something so they were not only um, you know, providing this man with a show of independence, but they were communicating to him and anyone who saw the shirt just how much they loved him. Now, when we think of, you know, this guerrilla warfare in Missouri, when we think of you know, a term like bleeding Kansas, you know, there is this assumption that this is all occurring on, you know, Missouri's Western border, um, even with someone like Jesse James and the, and the James gang, you know, later on, you know, again, that kind of St. Joe, Kansas City, Western Missouri area. Yet, could we make the case, kind of look, in looking at your book, that this bushwhacking, this guerrilla warfare is happening throughout the entire state? Yes, absolutely. Um, now, it, it would take slightly different forms, and sometimes maybe a little bit more radical forms, but, but, but I would say that the variations are probably um, uh, much more minimal um, than you know, then maybe the difference between like guerrilla warfare and, 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 you know, one of these, you know, the conventional battles of the war. So, uh, you know, Western Missouri is definitely the hot spot, And like you said, and not only because of what happens during the war, but you, you have that legacy of, of really five or six years of, of partisan warfare, you know, from the Wakarusa war on um, going on along the border. And so people, you know, conflate sort of those two wars. And, and there is a lot of continuation. I mean, it's the same populations enduring that war uh, the fighters will be different. The people who were border ruffians really weren't the same people who became guerrillas, uh, with a few exceptions. Um, but but you have a distinctive type of guerrilla warfare happening there. Later on, and I, and and uh, Jeremy Neely, who was on your podcast uh, not long ago, did a great job pointing this out. Later on, after Order Number Eleven uproots those communities on the western border, a lot of the war moves to to central Missouri. And so there you have a lot of these Western Missouri fighters, the guys that wear the guerrilla shirts and, and you know, the Quantrills and Bloody Bill Andersons and, and, and all of those guys. Um, they're fighting there, but they're fighting and intermingling with guerrillas that were homegrown in Sheridan County, Howard County, Boone County. And they were a little bit different because that guerrilla community um, was, was much more informed by the Confederate experience, uh, meaning a lot of the guys who became guerrillas in central Missouri had joined the Confederate Army, uh, whether it was the Missouri, Missouri State Guard or, or another, uh, you know, uh, or joined with another um, unit when the, they were recruiting in 1862, 1863. Um, those men had fought in the Confederate Army, been away to, you know, Arkansas, Mississippi, wherever, and had since come home to Missouri. And so they connected to each other, not through kin. Uh, the Western Missouri guerrillas were all related. I mean, everybody's a cousin of a cousin, you know, or, or married to a cousin of a cousin. In central Missouri, these guys sort of knew each other as veterans and, you know, linked up with each other that way. And so they're fighting a particular type of guerrilla war. And then these Western Missouri guerrillas come in and they change it. Um, from the very outset of the war, there were guerrillas that popped up in northeastern Missouri around the Hannibal area. There's a guy named Hawkeye Livingston, which is 
uh, I think it had something to do with his ability. He either had one eye or it has a, had something to do with his ability as a marksman, maybe both. Um, but you have these great characters that, in terms of their names that pop up um, up there and they're firing into trains and burning railroad bridges and firing into you know um, boats along the Mississippi. You have Sam Hildebrand and a bunch of gorillas who pop up down in southeastern Missouri and they'll fight um, on their own and sometimes hand in hand with the with the various uh, Confederate uh, armies that, that will probe into that part of the state. Uh, so you have gorillas all over the place. You have Union gorillas who are fighting down in um, near Springfield, you know, in those sort of bald knobber areas of, of, of the state. So guerrilla warfare is taking place all over uh, Missouri. And I will actually say, Sean, that guerrilla warfare is taking place all over the Confederate South. And uh, Daniel Sutherland, who wrote a great book called uh, A Savage Conflict, he points out that the average, or the typical experience with, with the Civil War, with the violence of the Civil War, for a Southerner was the guerrilla war. It was not the conventional war. So guerrilla war is much more the norm during the Civil War than, you know, what you know what we imagine you know Pickett's Charge at, at Gettysburg or or um, you know Stones River or these other you know big battles uh, in the conflict Vicksburg for instance so yes there there's guerrilla warfare taking place all over the state and it's and it's sort of you know a little bit different everywhere it's really fascinating to think about kind of the the wide geography within the state of what is going on now in thinking about the activities that are happening, the incidents that are going on, you know, how were people at that time viewing the bushwhackers and their activities? I could think of someone like, you know, the John Edwards especially was, was one example that I caught um, in the book. And then how do they also view themselves and their actions? Yeah, those, those are two really, really good questions. And, and they're probably questions that have mostly, uh, you know, different, different responses. Um, so in terms of how they're viewed from by others, there, there's a, a significant portion of the South. Um, if you go through some of these old Confederate newspapers or Southern newspapers, um, read letters and diaries, there, there's a significant chunk of the South that sees these guerrillas, especially the notable ones like, like Quantrill and, and, um, and sees their, their more infamous acts like, like you know, the raid on, on Lawrence or, or you know, the fighting down at Baxter Springs. Um, and they see them as gallant knights. You know, it, they see them as kind of the way that the guerrillas imagine themselves to be. Um, there's, there's others though, and you know, we're talking like the, the big, you know, sort of um, uh, figures in the Confederate leadership, like Robert E. Lee um, and, and others who, who don't think very highly of the guerrillas, and not, and not just the Missouri guerrillas. They just, in general, are not fans of guerrilla warfare, and that has to do with all sorts of things, like, like. Who they think should have the power, you know, he, someone like Lee or or um, Jefferson Davis, they they probably would rather have these men in the formal Confederate armies instead of fighting on their own hook, and um, they don't like the way that they fight and and all that. But it, so the it's a bit mixed in the South. In the North, um, generally the the guerrillas are are despised, um, and and for obvious reasons. You know, if you're a Northerner and you're you're reading an account of what happens at Lawrence, uh, you you wouldn't have to be an abolitionist. To be, you know, taken aback by by what happens there uh, with the slaughter of, you know, maybe 180,000 unarmed men and boys, um, the burning of dozens and dozens of, of buildings, you know, et cetera, uh, uh, racial violence, you know, all of the the African American men that they could get their hands on were, were killed, obviously at, at Lawrence. Um, Northerners are 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 
you know, they are sickened by by what they see. And in a lot of ways, the guerrilla's activities sort of confirm uh, a northern stereotype of what Southerners, whether it's uh, poor yeoman uh, uh, white Southerners or it is, you know, these planter class Southerners, what they're like, that they're that really they're they're not in control of their emotions. They're incredibly violent. They always resort to violence rather than than argument. You know, it makes me think of Preston Brooks and, and Charles Sumner on the on the floor of the, the Senate. Um, th that's who these men are. When they when 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 push comes to shove, they lash out and they lash out in ways that are quote unquote uncivilized. Um, now the guerrillas, as I alluded to, you know, earlier in my response, they definitely saw themselves as as gallant defenders of, of hearth and home. Um, I, I do believe that that some of them, um, you know, that their views changed, and it was not, you know, they they by the end of the war they weren't thinking of themselves as you know sort of like the uh, um, the the knights. Um, uh, or, or the, the, what we might think of today as uh, in when we watch the Westerns, you know, as, as the guy in the white hat, they definitely thought of themselves as bad dudes for sure. But they thought that what they were doing was uh, a sort of means to an end. Um, they, they had to fight this way because the enemy brought the war to them. They were the ones who were aggrieved. They were the ones who were going to seek vengeance on these men who had come in and burned down their homes, uh, uh, you know, attacked their women. Etc. So they're an aggrieved party, and they they believe themselves to be agents of vengeance. So you know whether it's scalping, whether it's you know other forms of mutilation, uh, killing prisoners, whatever it was, they believe that all of that was uh, a way to ultimately defend their land and and repel this this enemy. And kind of in a similar vein, thinking about not only how they viewed themselves and others viewed them at the time. You know, as a historian, and, and you're looking at these materials, you know, how did you view someone like, let's say, Bloody Bill Anderson or William Quantrill, let's say, at the start of this project, and, and how did you interpret their lives afterwards? Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a tough one because, well, first off, it's a tough one because actually when I started this project, you know, I was sort of, you know, uh, going on and on about this at the beginning, but yeah, I really imagined writing a a dissertation and then a book that focused much more on the the women and much more on the households and the sort of gender system that was in place, uh, less so than than the way that the book came out, which was sort of setting up that that gender system and then really you know taking off and exploring the men. Um, so in a lot of ways, this this later on became a study of men. And along those lines, I never thought I would write about Quantrill or Bloody Bill Anderson. Like I kind of wanted to leave the iconic figures out and sort of write this study without those guys. And, but, you know, within, a, you know, however long of researching it, you suddenly realize like, oh my God, well, I got, I've got to address these guys. One, it, people would think it, it was kind of cowardly to avoid, you know, uh, addressing the, the, these tougher figures. And two, I mean, they are incredibly interesting and a lot of fun. Uh, I don't mean that in like a ha-ha jovial way, but as a historian, you're looking for things that are intellectually stimulating. And those figures are, to, you know, despite their 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 gore and and the mayhem that they were responsible for, they are intellectually stimulating figures. So, um, but to to answer the question, John, which I think is probably you know the toughest one that you've asked, um, I I'm pretty uncomfortable with 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 the way that I. Feel about them. I I didn't think much of them, obviously, as as 
people going into it. Um, you know, I just figured that they were pro-slavery uh, men who became violent over the course of the war. And a lot of that, you know, I, I still feel is true. Um, but what my book tried to do and what I wanted readers to take away from it was that these men, despite the way that we feel about them with our modern sensibilities, were men. They were human beings uh, who were not born evil necessarily, although people would argue about Quantrill and probably Bill Anderson, um, but, but they were not born evil. They were not born necessarily violent. They became that way. Um, and they didn't necessarily become that way uh, all the time because they wanted to. Anderson was, was, was way more violent um, in terms of his conscious uh, attraction to, to bloodletting. But Quantrill, you get a sense that he is really sort of um, of two minds when it comes to, to the way that the war is becoming you know, more and more uh, gruesome. All of which is to say, uh, when people read the book, I want them to um, maybe come away feeling equally uncomfortable. That, that you know, recognizing that these people are human beings, they're not human beings I would ever want to you know spend any time with uh, either back then or if they walked into God forbid uh, like a bar room today. Um, but that understanding them is the only way we can really sort of get a grip on how someone becomes. Uh, a, like those guys were, you know, how someone can, can become like Bill Anderson, where they, you know, they're, you know, doing whatever they're doing before the war. He actually might've been a little bit of a, a cattle rustler before the war, but if you, let's say you're working on your farm before the war and three years into the war, you find yourself kneeling on, you know, some dead union soldier's back and you're about to, you know, scalp him. I mean, how does that happen to someone? Uh, how does that happen to a human being who without the civil war, you know, they might've lived a perfectly normal, peaceful life. So, so I was interested in that. And, I'm not sure that my overall view of them changed too much other than I probably just became more uncomfortable with the realization that, you know, these are human beings, um, uh, you know, what happened, what they did was as much about what, you know, they actively pursued as what happened to them. Um, and, and just to, to, to fully uh, maybe flesh this question out, I was talking to a friend who was nice enough to read my book a couple of years after it was published. And he's a, he's a very funny guy. He teaches down in Birmingham. And he said something like, you know, Joe, at the end of that book, you actually almost for a second had me believing that these guys were decent or, or, or were human beings. Um, and that's kind of what I wanted. I wanted people to come away not thinking that these, these were good guys, but that they were human beings who evolved over time to become this, this violence. Now, of course, with both individuals, they kind of meet their fate there. Um, kind of at the, as the war is uh, coming to an end. And something I thought was, was really fascinating, especially as the book was kind of winding down, was the discussion, uh, in some cases, you consider it kind of the legacy of someone like William Quantrill, which is, you know, what happens to his body once he is killed? And I thought that was kind of an, an interesting story to tell, perhaps, um, to conclude today. So could you share the story of William Quantrill's body? Yeah, yeah, of course, Sean. Um, it is it is sort of fascinating. And, and it's an interesting story, um, and like so many other interesting American stories, or, or uh, I, I, they all kind of become myths on a certain level, right? There's facts, and then there's sort of stuff built up around the facts. And if someone knows anything about Quantrill, they probably know a little bit about this story. Um, so some, I'm sure some of your podcast listeners know this story maybe even better than I do, but um, but at the end of the war, Quantrill is, is sort of cast out of, of 
um, the, the company of gorillas that he sort of helped form and organize and all that stuff. And he kind of goes off on his, on his own for a while. And then eventually he makes his way to Kentucky and he'll fight in Kentucky uh, throughout the, the, the you know, January into uh, May of 1865. In, in May of 1865, he um, ends up being wounded. It ends up being a, a, mortal, a mortal wound. He's paralyzed. Um, and he's sort of taken a, a, you know, in a cart to the, to the prison up in Louisville. Long story short, he dies there. Now, I, I won't get into all the stuff surrounding his death and whether or not it was actually him who died there, because there are, there are open questions. Um, I think they're mostly for conspiracy theorists to, to entertain, so we won't go there. But um, he dies. He has his body secretly buried, because even though he, um, you know, he, he's sort of been able to remain quasi-anonymous in Kentucky. Um, not everybody knows, you know, who he is. Um, he is still worried about, about uh, grave robbers, essentially, uh, people, you know, disturbing his grave, which is, you know, if you think about like later on, like Frank James will have these same concerns because of what happens to his brother and then he won't want his own body, you know, like he's afraid the scientists are going to dig it up. All this stuff goes back to the Civil War. He's afraid his, his bones will be disturbed somehow. So his, his body is buried secretly in a uh, Catholic cemetery. The, the sexton of the cemetery like throws the, you know, the, the, the kitchen waste on top of the, the, the mound, you know, to, to keep people from realizing it's a grave and all that stuff. Uh, sometime later, uh, about two decades later, Quantrill's mother, who was from Ohio, Quantrill is from Ohio, that's a fascinating part of his story that we, we don't have time for today, but she comes down to Kentucky looking for him. And, and what happens from there is pretty controversial. They, they, they locate the body. The wife of the former sexton is really uncomfortable digging it up, but they dig it up. And uh, this man who is with Mrs. Quantrill wants to take the skull back to Mrs. Quantrill at the hotel to basically show it to her so she can sort of have some closure. <laughs> but then he promises to bring it back and rebury it. And what happens next, of course, is that they abscond with the skull, the bones. They make their way back to uh, Ohio. Um, they're going to bury the skull, the bones in, in the cemetery. But, but <laughs> I mean, there's just one more, one despicable person after another. What ends up happening is W.W. Scott, the man who's with Mrs. Quantrill, only buries a couple of the bones. He tells her he's buried all of them, but only buries a couple of them. He tries to offload the bones, sell them the skull and a couple other bones. He can't get rid of them. He dies in possession of the bones. William E. Connolly, who becomes a Quantrill biographer, buys the skull and a couple of the bones. He, he lives in Kansas. He then tries to sell the bones. Um, they end up in the Kansas Historical Society, I believe, um, where people can go and, and look at them for a while. And then ultimately, they're reinterred in Higginsville in Missouri at the, at the old Veterans Cemetery there. So long story short, you have parts of Quantrill in Kentucky, in Ohio, in Missouri, sort of all across this borderland you know, full of, you know, all these different identities that come smashing and crashing together during the Civil War. And I think in a lot of ways that sort of encapsulates uh, what the Civil or what the guerrilla war was, you know, it really is this mixing and mingling of, of different communities of people. Um, and, it, and it challenged people's identities and who they thought they were, you know, you have a northerner like Quantrell, who ends up becoming the most famous, you know, southern guerrilla. Um, so it, anyway, his bones are all over the place. Um, 
and uh and you know you can go find him i've i've been to uh, uh th- i've been to all three of his graves um there's probably bits and pieces of them in, in kansas too but um that's that's besides the point so hopefully that satisfies your curiosity sean thank you very much for joining me today joe it was a pleasure i i, I know that i blathered on quite a bit but uh you know you write a book on on someone as fascinating as the bushwhackers and it's hard to stop talking Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests, and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri.